Are you recording now? Recording. <laughs> this is gonna sound weird. Things are about to get weird. Just get to the murder. Hello. Um, Hello. It's me, Taylor. And me, Sydney. Your host of this podcast we like to call This Is Gonna Sound Weird. A podcast about all things true crime, paranormal, and everything in between. Um, what's our theme this week, Taylor? This week, our theme is Christmas crimes. Insert generic Christmas music here. It's just Mariah Carey screeching. Uh huh. <laughs> that was my whistle tone. If you could hear it, you probably couldn't because it was so high. It was like a dog whistle. Yeah, yeah this week's. Uh, I'm actually gonna. I'm not gonna do a crime. I'm gonna do a crime of passion, um, and I'll tell you why. Because Mr. Christmas, Michael Bublé. Mm-hmm. I was recently informed, and by recently I mean today, but many moons ago, Michael Bublé was engaged to Emily Blunt. Yes, that uh-huh. Emily Blunt. And that he cheated on her oh. with some some lady and that there's a picture in the uh, in the internet of him his bare bottom in oh. the bed. Oh. I was unaware of this. So. Now I will never be able to listen to whatever that one Christmas song I really like of his ever again. I can't even remember the name of it. What is it? Oh well. Somebody will know it. Just a Christmas song that he sings? Mm-hmm. It's beginning to look a lot yep, like Christmas? it's that one. Yep, it's that one. <laughs> it is that <laughs> one. The most, the most generic Christmas song. Mm-hmm. I, ju- I do like that one the best. I don't know. Um, not, it's not my favorite Christmas song, but it's the one I like of his. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but... That, that's some information that I have. Uh, so, there you go. I'm sorry if I ruined Christmas for you. But that is what happened, according to my boss. Also, I did not check to verify. Well, then you're spouting fake news. I call it fake news. Um, I decided, I don't know if I can decide this. Um, maybe I can. Let me know if I can't, people of this podcast. But, you know... I thought I want to do some other type of celebrations around the Christmas season that isn't just your old generic Christmas. So I was like, you know what? It'll be fun to do some like winter solstice like celebrating because you know that was like the I think it's like Yule is it's also called Yule like in pagan uh, mm-hmm. like tradition. And so I think I want to start trying to do some stuff for that, which is mostly just about you know like new life and rebirth and it's a lot of you know getting into nature doing that and I was like I'm gonna start doing some traditions for myself and then when I have children I think it will be fun to like do that around Christmas time so it's not just all Christmas and they can be like I don't know somewhat cultured or something like that uh so I'll keep you updated I was watching a video before we started about a a lady that she lived in Germany in Bavaria and she was gonna teach me what I can do for uh the winter solstice, which this year is December 21st, if anyone was curious. Wow, so she's going to teach specifically you? Mm-hmm. About she the said, Taylor, this is for you. Wow. Yeah. She knew. She yeah, did. I think that is very cool. Because also, I, like, I think a lot of times people are like, oh, like, 
our Christmas traditions are so rooted in Christianity, but a lot of it is pagan. Like, the mm-hmm. Christmas tree itself is yep. pagan. The Yule log is pagan. Mm-hmm. And even, oh, I was watching that video, and it was actually interesting, because she was like, you know, the old pagan holiday is all about, like, birth and, like, new life. And she was like, literally, Christmas, the Christians took it to be the birth of Jesus. I was like, oh, I didn't even think of that part. Because I'm pretty sure, historically, they say Jesus was probably born in, like, the spring or the summer, I'm pretty sure. The summertime. So... Anyways, interesting. I'm going to keep doing some research. I told Brandon, I was like, we're going to start celebrating the winter solstice. And he was like, okay, what do we have to do? And I was like, I don't know yet. He was like, so you're going to tell me we're going to celebrate, but you don't know what we're supposed to do? And I was like, I'll get back to you in a couple business nope. days. Um, I just need you to get ready. To get mm-hmm. ready. Yes. You know, maybe do some like manifesting, something like that. Um... I don't know. I would decorate a tree, but because I want to, you know, they said you can like decorate a tree outside and put like edible things on it for like the little animals to come eat. But I don't know if I'm going to be able to prep for that quite yet. And I also don't know what kind of tree I'll put it on, but I'll let y'all know. I'll let y'all know what I come up with. And if y'all have things that you do, send it, send it to our Gmail at, this is going to sound weird, at gmail.com because I'd like to know. We greatly appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Anyways. Now to crimes. Yep. Christmas crimes, specifically. Specifically, yes. Yes. Taylor, you went first last week. I'm I gonna did. I'm going to go first this week. Okay. I'll allow it. And uh, I'm doing mine on the Santa Claus killer, or one, because evidently there are there are multiple Santa Claus killers, which that's is terrifying not... in itself. Yeah. That's pretty scary. Uh, so this is also known as the Ortega family massacre. Mm-hmm. And my sources are Wikipedia, Oxygen.com, and the Los Angeles Times. So, picture this. It's Christmas Eve 2008, and the Ortega family is having a Christmas get-together at their home in Covina, which is a quiet, low-crime suburb of Los Angeles. And the Ortegas loved Christmas, and were having a great time playing a family game of poker. However... At approximately 11.30 p.m., the doorbell rang, and Bruce Pardo stood dressed in a Santa Claus suit with a gift-wrapped package containing a rolling air compressor, which he had converted to deliver gasoline from it, and also carried with him four 9mm semi-automatic handguns. So after the door opened, Pardo pulled out the handguns and immediately shot eight-year-old Katrina in the face as she ran to greet him and then he began firing at the other members of the family as they fled he then unwrapped the package containing the compressor and used it to spray gasoline setting the house on fire soon police started getting all of these different 911 calls they were just pouring in from various neighbors reporting that the Ortega's house was on fire and some even reported that they could hear gunshots coming from the home After the attack, Pardo changed out of his Santa suit and drove off in his rental car, which is a Dodge Caliber. When police arrived at the scene, it was total chaos. They couldn't believe what they had been were being told because, I mean, that sounds freaking insane that Santa Claus showed up at these people's house and just started shooting people. Uh, yeah. Also, because I feel like this was a 
this is a quiet town like this just doesn't happen no especially since like i mean it wasn't like an altercation he literally just showed up opened the door and shot a child that is Mm -hmm. horrific and the only Ortega family member that police were actually able to locate was Leticia, who had managed to escape the fire with her husband and eight-year-old daughter. When police entered the home, they found bodies burned beyond recognition. And it's actually really sad. When they first started investigating, they didn't even know who all was at the party. Oh. Um, so they had to initially make these people missing persons. Oh, no. And then they had to use dental records to determine who the family members were before they could confirm that they were, in fact, dead. Oh, my gosh. So, while investigating this, so while investigating the scene, police received a tip from a neighbor who had seen a Dodge Caliber leaving the cul-de-sac at around 11.45, so police put out an APB for the car. The same night... In the nearby town of, I think it's Salomar, California. I don't know. I'm from North Carolina. <laughs> uh, couldn't say, but we'll go with it. If it's not correct, <laughs> somebody maybe will correct us. Perhaps. If we're lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so Brad Pardo comes home from a Christmas party to find his brother Bruce lying dead in a pool of blood from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head from a 9mm gun. Okay. And police thought this was odd because, I mean, to have two such horrific events happen on such a such a happy night because I mean it's Christmas Eve. Yeah. And also in towns that are pretty close from my understanding, these towns are only like 20, 30 minutes apart. So pretty close. And yeah. police begin to look into Bruce's past. And they discover that Bruce had actually recently just gone through a divorce that had been finalized on December 18th, just a few days before Christmas Eve. Police also discovered that Bruce's wife, Sylvia Ortez, had the maiden name of Ortega, as in the Ortega family from the Christmas Eve massacre. Police then performed autopsies on the bodies from the Ortega house and found that all of the victims had been shot with a 9mm handgun, the same gun Pardo had been shot with himself. On Christmas Day, police interviewed Leticia Ortega, who said that despite the Santa Claus suit, beard, and hat, she could positively identify the shooter, and it was in fact her ex-brother-in-law, Bruce Pardo. Investigators then went back to Brad's house and searched Brad. Bruce's car, which ended up being the same car seen in the Ortega's neighborhood as described by the neighbors after the murder. Inside the car, they found a Santa suit and thousands of rounds of ammunition, and the car was actually, no, this is wild, the car was actually booby-trapped with explosives, so once police removed the Santa suit from the car, it exploded. The heck? How did he get, yeah, I which mean, is, I guess maybe he made all the explosives, but God. I do not know. It very oh, much reminds you me, if you've ever seen the Keanu Reeves film uh, Speed, it, it reminds me of that. Like the, the uh, you know, antagonist is 
bringing all these things to kind of mess up the police. Mm-hmm. So around the same time, a man reported a mysterious car being parked in the front of his home in Pasadena. So police ran the plates on that car and found that it had also been rented by Bruce Pardo. And inside that car was a computer, clothes, water, food, and a map of the U.S. and Mexico. And it was parked about 500 feet from the house of Scott Nord, who was Sylvia's divorce attorney when she divorced Bruce. Mm-hmm. So this led police to speculate that Pardo might have been planning on murdering Scott that night as well. So, when they had divorced in June 2008, the court had ordered Bruce to pay $1,785 a month in spousal report and $10,000 as part of the divorce settlement. Sylvia also was able to keep the wedding ring and family dog during the divorce. And as the divorce uh, unfolded, Pardo had confided to a friend that his wife was, quote, taking him to the cleaners and complained that Sylvia was living with her parents, not paying rent, and had spent lavishly on luxury cars, gambling trips to Las Vegas, meals at fine restaurants, massages, and golf lessons. Uh Uh-huh. So, police, you know, are, like, obviously, this man is disgruntled regarding Mm -hmm. his divorce, and this is his motive. Yeah, it's pretty clear he does not seem happy with the situation at all. No. So, police believed, based off of, you know, the map, um, and the fact that he had recently purchased a plane ticket to a flight by Canadian Air, they thought Pardo had initially intended to flee town. So now they have to figure out, you know, why didn't he? Because he had also called a high school friend a few days prior to the murders saying that he was planning to visit him pretty soon. So during his killing spree, Pardo had pulled out a homemade flamethrower to spray 18 gallons of gasoline into the house. But he didn't realize that there was already an open flame somewhere in the house. So Uh when he went to spray, it caused this huge explosion that left him horribly burned. Uh And some reports even state that the Santa suit had melted during the flamethrowing portion of the attack and that it had adhered to his skin. So when he took it off, not all of the suit could be removed. Uh. Oh, God. And this was actually confirmed... Because during his autopsy, uh, it was revealed that Pardo had, quote, horrific third-degree burns on his arms and hands. So police believe that he had initially intended to kill Scott after the initial killing. However, that he, after getting so badly burned, decided to drive to his brother's house where he completed suicide due to his ridiculous burns. Oh, my. Throughout the investigation, police also found $17,000 in cash, which was cling-wrapped to Pardo's leg inside a girdle. And then they searched Pardo's home, and they found five empty boxes of semi-automatic handguns, 
a tactical shotgun, and a container of high-octane fuel tank gasoline. And then they also found what they describe as a, quote, virtual bomb factory in his home. So, how does, uh, how do you get your hands on all this? I mean, I guess if you're a sketchy dude, you have your ways. I mean, yeah, I guess, I mean, obviously this, these sort of stories, we, we listen to enough true crime that we figure out if you really want to get something, you can get it. You'll find yeah. a way. That's true. In, That's very true. In, yeah. In the end, nine people ended up losing their lives. And three were left wounded. And that's that's pretty much the story. It's very sad. Um, uh-huh. All because of divorce. Look, divorce, it's a crazy thing. And I feel like a lot of true crime stories begin with a divorce or an almost divorce. Um, oh, Yeah. My boss and I were talking about this, like, I want to say, like, two days ago. We were talking about how, like, it's, you know, how crazy it is when people get, like, go into affairs because you never know what could happen. Like, oh, yeah. People, people snap. She told me this horrible story about someone she knew that their significant other had had an affair and the, the husband just couldn't take it. Turned around, killed the woman. <gasps> yeah, I you listened. Never, you never I know listen- how people will react. Or, you know, it could be they don't kill you. They kill the person you're having an affair with. And mm-hmm. in which case, everybody's, you know, everybody's lives are ruined. Yep. I remember when we were, like, in law school, we would talk about specific cases. And it was like, uh... It was like when a murder would be like a crime of passion, you know? And almost everyone we talked about was like, say you catch your spouse having an affair with another, like you actually catch them in the act and then you murder them. And I'm like, that was like all the examples. And I'm like, well, clearly that's happened a lot because this ca- this example can't just come up this much. Um, but, you know, I guess, I mean, love will make you do some crazy things. I mean, I wouldn't kill somebody if they were cheating with Brandon on me. But uh, I might give him a little punch in the face, and uh, I would never do that to anybody because I'm scared. So if I ever, she, even if I raise my voice at somebody, you know. <laughs> listen, she's lying. She just doesn't want to go on record in this recording and saying that she'll murder someone. I definitely I will not. That. I don't. I don't think I um, am capable of that kind of anger. Uh, I might be one day. Nah, probably not. But yeah, that story is horrible. I've heard it before. I think I heard it on a podcast a while ago. And it's just, it's so sad. Because I'm pretty sure like the little girl, I've like on one of them, they were like, the little girl opened up the door and you think it's Santa Claus there to give you a present on Christmas Eve. And then he literally mm-hmm. like shoots you. And that's horrific, obviously. Well, I also think about like, so the little, so Katrina, the little girl, she runs up and part of me is like, she partially is probably running up because she thinks it's Santa Claus, but she might also recognize this as oh yeah her her former relative and be like oh it's Uncle Bruce yeah probably which is like extra terrifying. Uh, so I guess that means I can't trust Santa Claus and I also can't trust my relatives. Great. Um, 
we already knew you couldn't trust the relatives. The Santa Claus is a new bit of information. That is a new bit of information. I mean, Santa Claus has always been a bit creepy. There's a picture of my dad and my uncle in like a 1970s Santa Claus lap. That Santa Claus is the absolute creepiest Santa Claus you will ever see in your life. Honestly, I may post a picture. My grandma posts pictures all the time. I'll post a picture and blur out my dad's and my uncle's face. Because y'all need to see this this scary Santa Claus. Like, he looks like he's about to... Well, he looks like he just got off, like, the third shift working in a cigarette factory. And he decided to smoke every <laughs> single one before he went to be Santa Claus. Like, he looking rough. That's like when you see when you see pictures of people at Disney World when it first opens, yeah. like, you know. God. It's, it's like the 50s it's like a 60s horror movie. Those mice look horrifying. <laughs> they look so like bad. they have come from the sewers to take you your chi- your child's soul or something. It's yeah. so bad. It's bad. Um Yeah. Yeah, please please share that picture if you could find it. Um, oh, I can't. I think my that grandma would really that would. Yeah, I'm sure Mama's gonna hook us up with a pic. She, yeah, she posts it frequently. Um, I'm sure she's posted it at least five times over the past year, um, and she does it about every year. So we'll have it. We'll have it on standby. <laughs> yeah. I saw it the other day. So thanks, Mama. But, yeah, yeah. But thank you for your story. I mean, you thank know. you, but no, thank you because it was terrible. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but are we now ready for my horrible story? No. Well, that's too bad because I'm going to tell it to you anyways. So I uh, am doing, enough. yeah, I'm doing my story on the Lawson family. And so these are my sources. Wikipedia, southerncalls.com, the Lawson family tragedy by Alice Adams, horrorobsessive.com, the Lawson family by Neil Gray, news.com, AU by Candace Sutton in a podcast called Deadly Secrets and I'm pretty sure it was hosted by a guy named Chad Tucker and it was like kind of like a local news podcast I think it was like a short series of like 20 minutes each um I would recommend listening to it because it was helpful and I'll kind of get into it as I go through my story so Picture it. It's a cold, snowy, and quiet Christmas morning in Germantown, North Carolina. And Germantown, North Carolina is near Winston-Salem. It's kind of northern of Winston-Salem. It's like near, close-ish to like Virginia border. Um, Anyways, and it was especially quiet at the Lawson family farm because on this Christmas, the entire family had been massacred. Oh. So... Mom, Fanny, and children Marie, James, Raymond, Mary Lou, Carrie, and Maybelle were all found dead on the farm with their arms crossed. Some had pillows under their heads and others had rocks under their heads. And Dad, Charles, was found shot in the woods nearby. Now, just who could or would have done such a horrible thing to this family member on Christmas Day? Well... To answer this question, we need to go back a little bit, and we're going to go back to where it all began. In 1911, Charles Lawson and Fanny Manning met each other and got married. And soon after, they did what people do, and they started having some kids. And they ended up having eight kids, because this was the early 1900s. 
But unfortunately, their third child, William, had passed away of an illness at a young age. So they had seven kids. And at the time of the deaths, um, the children were these ages. So we have Marie, who was 17, Arthur, who was 16, Carrie, 12, Maybell, 7, James, 4, Raymond, 2, and Mary Lou, 4 months. So I just, that's a lot of kids at a lot of different ages. I just can't. That's too much. That's too much kids. Yep. That's too many damn kids. To be honest with you, one kid's too much for me. So, (laughs) but it sounded to me like uh, Mr. Lawson was getting it in. Yeah. And, you know, he kind of needed to because in 1918, the family had moved to Germantown. That's when they actually moved there. And they moved there to be tenant tobacco farmers. So they were pretty, they were sharecroppers. So they needed these kids, you know, to work on farm or whatever. And they were actually able to save up enough money by being a sharecropper. Because, you know, when you're a sharecropper, you don't actually, like, own your own farm. You kind of, like, rent out the land and then do it that way. But in 1927, they were actually able to purchase their own farm on Brook Cove Road. So by 1929, which is the year that the murders took place, they were living on their own farm and they were tending to it. And shortly before Christmas that year, they decided that they were going to take the whole family into town to buy some new clothes because Charles really wanted to have a nice family portrait taken. And the people in the community thought this was a little odd because at the time it was very uncommon for a working class rural family to go have a nice photo taken because, you know, it was expensive to get the clothes. It was expensive to travel and obviously to have to pay to get the picture taken. I'm sure it was not cheap, Um, but the family, they got the clothes on, they went into town and they got their picture. I was going to say photo and picture at the same time, and I said picture. <laughs> they got their picture took. Um, now, the picture itself is kind of weird when you look at it, and I'll post this because, you know, it's everywhere. So, in the picture, you would think that, like, the mom and the dad would be standing in the middle of the picture beside each other, but it's actually so the oldest daughter, Marie, and the father, Charles, are in the center and back of the photo so it almost makes them look like they're the parents and then like off to the side uh the mom fanny is standing just like holding her four month old and honestly pretty much everybody in the picture looks mad which i'm like i know that this was 1929 so i don't know how long it took for a picture to be taken back then i know back in the old days you might have to sit there for like 10 minutes but the dad charles looked kind of he just like a weird look on his face and then one of the daughters was kind of smiling she was like a younger daughter but either way they looked pissed to be there they were probably like why are we in these itchy ass clothes why do we go all the way into town to sit here and do this but they got the picture took uh so that was i also think back in the day when you took a picture, you had to be, like, still for a long time. Yeah. I don't think people were able to keep that smile together. I mean, shit. Yeah, I guess okay. they all just have... I, I, I mean, have to laugh, or my my smile looks stupid in pictures, so... Yeah, I mean, and you know, but they were, looked extra pissed off, but it was also the Great Depression. So, like, I can't blame them. But, uh, you know, while the townspeople thought that this was a little odd of the family to do, in general, the family was pretty normal around town. And, you know, they just thought, well, maybe Charles wants to get a nice picture of his family. People generally knew him as a nice, good, devoted father. He was sometimes strict, but, you know, he owned a farm. 
he would work a lot with his children and his wife on the farm and they were renovating the farmhouse, you know, trying to make it a little nicer. But during one of the renovations, he, um, Charles was working on some rotten wood and I don't know what happened, but he accidentally smacked himself in the forehead with an ax and they oh. said that after this, he just didn't seem quite right. He just seemed a little different. Like, nothing you know crazy. I get, I get that. I get that. But, you know, who knows? I mean, back he probably got a concussion. And I'm sure back in the day, you didn't know about whether or not you had a concussion. But, like I said, family seemed normal. Typical farming family. So, you know, why would somebody murder them on Christmas Day? Well, I don't know. And I'll get to it. But we're back to Christmas Day. 1929. So that morning, Marie, the oldest daughter, woke up early. She was going to make a cake for the Christmas festivities. Um, she was making her special raisin cake, which sounds pretty gross, but uh, that's what she was baking. She was, she, was, <laughs> she was real excited. And after she finished baking her cake, she left it out to cool because she was going to ice it and make it look all pretty. Um, and while the cake was cooling, off... Mm, Arthur, who was a son, and Sanders, who was like a nephew, they took the family's two beagles out rabbit hunting, um, but while they were out, they ran out of ammo, so they went back to Charles, the father, and they were like, hey, we need more shells, but apparently there weren't any more on the farm, and so Charles was like, why don't you go into town and get some more ammo, and then you could come back. And around this time, the two younger girls, Carrie and Maybelle, were going to go visit with their aunt and uncle who lived nearby. So it's just like a normal Christmas. I feel like, you know, Christmas morning sometimes or Christmas Eve, you just kind of doing, y'all doing your thing. And then they were all going to come together that night and like eat dinner. Um, and, you know, like I said, everything was going well. But as Carrie and Maybelle began walking toward their aunt and uncle's house, they were passing the barn on the property. And as they were passing the barn, they were met by their father, Charles. And Charles had been waiting there for him, for them. And uh, he came out of the barn and he shot both of his daughters. Uh, and to ensure that they were dead, he bludgeoned them with the handle of a gardening hoe. Um, and after this, Charles made his way into the home. He shot his wife, who was in the middle of peeling potatoes on the porch. His oldest daughter, Marie, heard the shot and she screamed. And the two younger boys in the house tried to find a hiding spot. But Charles just loaded more shells into his shotgun. So, um, clearly they weren't out of ammunition on the farm. Um... And he swung open the front door and shot his daughter, Marie, who immediately slumped to the floor in front of the fireplace. He then reloaded the gun again and shot his son, James, who was just two years old. And then he shot Raymond, who was four. And then he went to his four-month-old baby, Mary Lou, and bludgeoned her to death. So this man is a shit human. Aw. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, a pretty good way to, to summarize it. Yeah. And so at this point, Charles uh, just like ran off into the woods. And so Claude Lawson, who was a nephew of the Lawsons, along with some other relatives, I think there were other ones with them, they went over to the home to tell, you know, everybody Merry Christmas. And when they got there, they discovered an entirely murdered family. And so they obviously contacted the police. And when the police arrived on the scene, 
uh, they saw that each of the family members obviously had been murdered and they had all been laid out with their arms crossed. And the ones that were inside the house were the ones that had pillows laid under their head. And the daughters who he had killed in the barn were found in the same position with their arms crossed, but they had rocks under their heads instead of pillows. So he literally took the time to like place his family, which I don't know if you've ever heard the John List murders. When he murdered his family, it seems similar to that because he, like, laid them out, like, in the ballroom. It's very odd. Um, yeah, when I think about, like, people positioning, I almost, I feel like there's always that question of, like, is there a sense of guilt or not? I mean, yeah. I feel like, I don't know if I necessarily, like, have an opinion on yes or no, but I do think that's always interesting. Like, the argument of, like... You know, like, if a body is covered or they fold their hands, you know. Yeah, it was like he was... shame with it? I mean, I'm sure this was shameful because he murdered his, you know, family, but who knows. Now, around this point, the police were at the home and the family didn't know where Charles was. Because at this point, they thought that, you know, like the family who had discovered this, they thought that maybe he was murdered too. um, And they just didn't know where he was. But around 5 p.m., the people that were on the farm, like the police and the other family members, they heard a gunshot ring out in the woods. And when they followed the sound of the shot, and they also heard the beagles howling in the woods, they found that Charles had shot himself in the chest in the woods. And when they found him, they found some letters near his body. And there was footprints circling the tree. So basically, after he had murdered his family, he was like pacing around this tree, like back and forth, back and forth, uh, prior to shooting himself. And one note that was found near him was written on a crumpled scrap of paper. And it was written to Charles's parents. And it simply said, blame nobody but I. And I'm like, sir, who else are we going to blame? Because you did it. Like, yeah, it wasn't anybody else's fault except for yours. But he Um, wants you, he really wants to hammer it down. You don't need to blame nobody else. It was just me. It was me. Uh, So, now I found this, like, I don't know, this, like, bothered me. So the entire family was buried in a single burial plot. And to me, I'm like, okay, it's fine to put the the rest of the family in there but they put the dad in with the rest of the family and they all have like this one big singular headstone and his fucking name is on it which just i don't know why that irritated me i mean i don't that does irritate me they should have just buried him with no what do they call like a pauper's grave they should have given him nothing uh but they did Mm -hmm. which did not fly with me but uh i didn't i didn't fly with me um and it was you know unfortunately these killings attracted a lot of attention in this small town and it's estimated that around 1500 curious onlookers attended the family's funeral and i'm gonna go ahead and say that's a lot of people 1500 people in 1929 went to this funeral yeah that's exactly what i was thinking like 1500 like you could easily get that in today with the news and stuff but i'm like this is probably like all like word of mouth Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you're probably wondering, why the hell did Charles massacre his entire family? Well, except for his one son. Um, Well, it isn't quite clear, but there are some speculated motives on why he may have done this. So the first potential reason um, is that um, it was caused by the head injury I told you about earlier. You know, when he hit himself in the head, 
They thought, mm-hmm. okay, maybe, you know, he damaged his brain and it altered his mental state. But apparently... I've said that... You listen. If you... If somebody gets a head injury, best just to kill them. But see, Sorry. I feel like... <laughs> better I feel than, like better you, them than me. That is true. But I feel like you usually hear, like, head injuries as a kid. Like, a lot of serial killers have head injuries as a kid. And obviously, when you're a kid, your brain's still developing. But they took Charles's body to Johns Hopkins Hospital to have an autopsy performed after he had died and to have his brain analyzed. And they said they didn't find any brain abnormalities. But, I mean, it was 1929, so, like, I don't know what they were really looking for. Um, But I'm, I mean, I would say maybe the fact that he'd hit himself on the head with an axe. I mean, it could have slightly helped with it, but I don't think that was the sole cause because... I feel like if it was, then he would have been exhibiting a lot more symptoms other than just acting a little weird, you know? Mm-hmm. So, the next theory for a motive, it didn't really crop up until about 1990 when a book was published titled White Christmas, Bloody Christmas, and it was written by M. Bruce Jones and Trudy J. Smith, and they're people who live in the area. Um, it was like a father-daughter that wrote the book. Um, And in this book, there's a claim that Charles and Marie, his 17-year-old daughter, were actually in an incestuous relationship. Now, I noted that this isn't really a relationship because if this is true, clearly the father was just abusing his daughter. But they were, you know, characterizing it as a relationship. But as we know, that's not a relationship. That's abuse. Sorry. Hate it for you. Um... So apparently a relative had been interviewed for this book and she said that she overheard Fanny's sister-in-laws and aunts discussing how Fanny, who was the mom in this situation, had said that she was concerned that her husband was having an incestuous relationship with her daughter. And this suspension, this suspicion had been mentioned by Fanny about a year before the murders took place. So like if this was going on, it was going on for, you know, quite some time. And even more support for this theory came out in 2006 when a book published by the same authors titled The Meaning of Our Tears came out. So in this book, it was told that a close friend of Marie's named Ella May had been told by Marie just a few weeks before the murders that Marie was actually pregnant and that she was pregnant with her father's baby and that Charles and Fanny both knew about the pregnancy. And a family member who was named Stella Lawson Bowles, she also said that this pregnancy was true. And you can hear her talking about this on the podcast. She basically kept this secret for her whole life because she didn't want to, you know, like give her family a bad name. But she was like, no, like Marie was pregnant and she was pregnant with Charles's baby. And basically they think that Charles killed the entire family because that was the only way he was going to be able to get rid of this rumor and all of it. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know why you had to kill the whole family. Like, why'd you have to kill the four-month-old? Why couldn't you have just, like, just yourself or something? But, you know, it's unclear as exactly the motive. I think the most likely motive was that either he was probably having maybe a relationship with his daughter that he did not, he should not have been having, and whether or not she was actually pregnant or not, couldn't say. Um, Mm -hmm. Or he was just an evil person, which, I mean, clearly he was. Well, if he's having the uh, relationship with his daughter, he was probably already evil. So, the statement stands on that. Now, I don't know about whether or not I believe that the wife 
you know, knew anything about it. But I could also see, like, you know, perhaps him killing the whole family because the wife found out or something. Yeah, and they speculate that he had been planning this. They think, some people think that he took the family to get that picture taken because he wanted to, like, have some sort of memento to, like, keep his family alive, you know, like, in the minds of people, I guess, because he knew he was going to kill them and maybe there was no photos of them. And he was like, well, I'd at least like it to have a photo. And he also apparently told, like, the kids a few weeks before Christmas, he was like, you're not going to be getting any presents for Christmas this year because I have, like, a surprise for you, which I'm like, I don't know if that's substantiated, but if he did say that, that is uh, that is so messed up. But this story, yeah, this story has fascinated North Carolinians from the moment it happened. Clearly, 1,500 people showed up to this um, funeral. And directly following the massacre, the house actually became a tourist attraction. So Charles's brother ran this tourist attraction, and he charged people a quarter to go in and take a look around the home. The house was left exactly as it was the day of the murder. The cake that had been made, the raisin cake, it was still out on the counter, and they left it there for the tours. Um, but people actually started to take raisins off of the cake as souvenirs when they would come to oh the house. God. And so they ended up having to put the cake in a glass container um, so people would quit stealing the raisins. Yeah. That is wild. Yeah, and this story was turned into a song, and they were calling it, it was like a bluegrass type of music. They were calling it, like, hillbilly music, I think, um, which I guess was, like, an actual type of music back in the day. And so, mm-hmm. they literally wrote a song about this murder. You can probably look it up. If you listen to the podcast, they play a little bit of it. But the band that wrote the song and recorded it would literally come to the house and sing this song during the tours, And it was a very popular song at the time because back, I know like in Appalachia and kind of like more like rural areas, I don't know if this is technically considered Appalachia. I think it's the Piedmont, but Mm -hmm. murder ballads were popular. So like bluegrass people will literally like sing about murder. Like in this song, it's literally like John Lawson murdered his whole family. Like you just go, it's, it's wild. Um, But the good thing. There's also, there's another one. Um, there's like another sort of like bluegrassy song that's like horrible. It's about this young woman who like goes to the creek and then like is attacked and then her body's left there, but it's like all to kind of happy laugh music. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like a lot of it has to do with, I think like back at least, like, in the mountains, I guess, kind of where I'm from, like, a lot of, it was obviously, there were, like, storytellers, and so I think they would use, like, the music as a way to also tell the story, which to us now sounds terrible, but I'm like, I think it was just, they had to keep themselves entertained somehow, so it's kind of like us sitting here talking to this podcast, they would do it in a musical form. Um, but the good thing about this, the how the fact that the house was a tourist attraction, if there's a silver lining, is that um, all the money that was raised for it was given to the surviving son, Arthur, you know, because now he had absolutely no family, like, direct family. So they gave the money to him to, like, you know, help make ends meet. Um, Now, there wasn't much about Arthur's life following this. Uh, He did get married, though, and he had four children. But unfortunately, in 1945, so not long after this, I think he was, like, around his 30s, 
he actually was in an automobile accident and died, leaving behind his family. Um, and you can no longer visit the home, hate to tell y'all, because it has been demolished. But the memory of this tragedy remains in the minds of many. And if you listen to this podcast that I told you about, what was it called? It's called I think it was called Deadly Secrets. A lot of people had criticisms about it, like in the comments. It's kind of like a newsy type podcast, but if you listen to it, you get to hear some good, like, mountain, Piedmont, North Carolina voices. So I would definitely recommend listening to it. You just get a real sense, and it kind of makes you, it just, like, brings the whole vibe of the thing. You can just, like, feel the heaviness of it. Um, mm-hmm. I would say listening to it. People said they couldn't understand people when they were talking, which kind of, I was like, well, they're old and they have really thick, you know, like, Piedmont accents. Um, Mm -hmm. but you should listen to it and it will like that song comes up and then there's a few other things they talk about, but I would recommend, um, but this story kind of, it fascinated me. I've heard it before. Um, but then when I researched it, I was like, Hmm, this is quite interesting and, uh, horrible. We both did family massacres, Christmas family massacres. What are the odds? I mean, if this is any indication, if you're asking yourself, should I go home for Christmas? Should I be with amongst family? Maybe (laughs) this is your sign. No, don't do it. Yeah. Because it may not end well. I mean, I mean, it might just be the normal not well, you know, where your your uncle brings up politics and ruins dinner, or it Mm -hmm. could be your uncle shows up and kills you. Yeah. Be careful. Don't trust nobody when you go home. Not your mama, not your daddy, not your dog. Nobody. Uh, be careful out there, people. Not the dog. You, you never know. Sometimes I'll be looking at texts. I'll tell Brandon, I'll be like, you know, one night, I was like, if we're just sleeping in the bed one night, texts could literally jump up in this bed and bite both of us in the neck and kill us immediately. You ever thought about that? Absolutely. We live yes, with I a wild animal. Be- <laughs> yes, I have thought about that because he is a Belgian... And they are wild. I mean, I don't think he would have the balls to do that. Um, and Brandon's like, well, if we could, if he gets one of us, then, you know, we won't die immediately, so then we can beat him up. And I'm like, well, if he gets your jugular vein, I'm like, if he gets your jugular, you're already dying. And he was like, well, at least I can show him who's boss. And I'm like, mm, I think he's already got you, man. <laughs> Good idea. Good idea. Show him who's boss. But, uh, yeah. Let's see. Is there anything else? Let's see. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, all, all of the things. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Um, next week, we are going to do a re-release. We're not sure yet what it will be, but it will be a surprise. Um, surprise so stay tuned for that because it will be Christmas. If you celebrate the winter solstice, let me know. Let me know what you do. Let us know if you burn a Yule log. I believe that the... I need to refresh my brain. I'm pretty sure that, like, the pagan tradition of a Christmas tree is has something to do with them getting high. So if you get high, let us know. Yeah, let us know. I won't be... I may have a Michelob seltzer or two. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if they had Living that back in... <laughs> I don't know if they had that back in the pagan times. I'm going to say No. They uh, they might have had a Michelob, but maybe not a Michelob seltzer. So that's true, that's true. New. 
Um, but anyways, have a happy holiday season. We'll be back before the new year, yeah. though, so don't worry. Don't worry. Don't get murdered uh, at your holiday get no. together. Um, be don't murder anyone. Um, yeah. Do eat. Do eat good food. Mm-hmm. Do eat good food. Be careful if you're traveling. There's a lot of traffic out right now. Um, I'm not really sure why. Um, but yeah, be careful. These people out here they wildin', driving crazy and such. Um, they do be wildin'. Yeah, eat some good food. Eat something peppermint and chocolate. I love peppermint mocha. Get you a peppermint chip milkshake from somewhere. Oh, yeah. Get a get a, a mint shake. They're so effing good. Mm-hmm. I don't uh, care that people don't like mint and dessert. I do. It's good. It is good. Okay. Um, But until then, stay weird. Goodbye. Goodbye.